This is Mark Fletcher, and welcome to my world. Southern Tales, Tall and Otherwise. So for tonight's first episode, I'm going to have to go through all the disclaimers and tell you all the backstory behind the stories that we're about to hear over the coming weeks and months and hopefully years if, if enough people get dialed into this thing. The first thing I want to tell you is that if you're a relative of mine or a friend of mine or somebody who accidentally told me a really cool story while maybe we were drinking or, or maybe we were even passed out and I heard the story and you hear it on here and you say, that's my story. I have to tell you, it's all of our stories. And if you want to contact me, there will be contact information at the end of the program. But for now, just be happy that you can agree with me that every goddamn word is true. Or at least close to it. Oh yeah, there's some names, places, specifics. They might have been modified, but mostly to protect the guilty ones who are still alive. But trust me, even the dead ones died happy. So here we go. Southern Tales, Tall and Otherwise, Episode 1, which we are going to call The End of the Innocence. And what do I mean when I say the end of the innocence? What, what is the innocence? And when you're growing up in a small southern town out in the middle of nowhere, how could you possibly lose your innocence? I'm talking about the, the late 60s, early 70s kind of time when basically nothing happened out there. I mean, we had three television stations that um, you could see most of the time. And, and if we went outside and turned the antenna just right, and maybe somebody leaned across the television set, we might get a fourth channel. Maybe not. It was a time where every station went off the air at midnight. Or maybe 1 a.m. for those really fancy stations that had a late movie. And they played the National Anthem. And the National Anthem was just some brass band playing it. And there was just a picture on the screen of the American flag that looked like it was waving, except it was just a still photograph, and it really wasn't waving. But you always stopped, you watched it, and you thought, wow, that's really cool. So where did the innocence come from, and where did it end? I, I can tell you this, that in the South... 
morality was a big deal. I mean, I, I never grew up in the North, obviously, or anywhere else, but I had the impression that maybe their standards were a little bit looser and maybe they didn't have blue laws. Now, blue laws were, were the thing where if you lived in a county that was fortunate enough to be what they called wet, the blue law said you couldn't sell any alcohol on Sunday. And I think that when I was growing up, every county that was wet had a blue law. Blue law blues. That's what the alcoholics would call it. And if you lived in a dry county, well, that wasn't really a big deal because everybody had bootleggers. And bootleggers were usually respectable kind of people. But wait a minute. We're getting ahead of ourselves. We're talking about the end of the innocence in the South and how it could happen. I had a friend of mine who uh, told me how he lost his innocence. And this is not the story because the story is going to be about when I realized I had lost my innocence. But he was riding his bicycle out one day down these gravel roads. And pretty much all roads were gravel out in the sticks. But to preface the story, the, the local dentist in town was named Doc Ayler. Doc Ayler was the only dentist in town. So everybody knew Doc Ayler. Anyway, my friend was riding his bicycle out, I mean, out in the country, down a gravel road, and he comes around this bend, and he sees Doc Ayler's 1956 Studebaker station wagon parked just off the road down a little farm entrance. You know, they would have these little dirt entrances or maybe a culvert where the tractors would go into the fields. Well, anyway, he saw Doc Ayler's station wagon there, and he thought, Wow. I wonder how Doc Haler's station wagon got there. Then he stopped his bike and walked over and looked inside of Doc Haler's station wagon and he saw Doc Haler's big white ass and a local school teacher. Kevin turned and ran. They didn't see him. He jumped on his bike, and he rode as fast and as hard. And he was sweating, and he was panting, and he didn't really know what to do. But he told me later, he said, that's when I lost my innocence. That was the day. And that goes back to my own. I, I grew up where I was the good kid. I always seemed like, you know, I always wanted to do what was right, and, and I loved church and Sunday school, and I would go to choir practice on Sunday night as the only kid under 13 that was in the adult choir, which was really cool for me. It made me really happy, and, and, and I just I thought that's the way the world was. And, and from first grade on, we had teachers who made sure that morals and, 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 and Jesus was a part of our education. Public education included morals. And I thought that's just the way it should be. And even today, I really don't think it's a problem, but I understand how people who don't have morals or don't have Jesus kind of don't want their kids to have it or whatever. But anyway, that's, that's beyond. Myself, I... I I guess I wondered why I was getting it at school and, and, and I thought about it a little bit, but it really never, ever really bothered me. You know, I, it didn't, it didn't, it, it didn't um, make me think that there was anything wrong with just a little bit of it. You know, I, 
as, as a kid, as I was growing up, I would say, well, who am I? You know, what, what am I? What, what is my purpose? You know, I know I was sheltered. I was an A student. I never missed a day of school. I love to learn. Uh, these things just seem like the natural thing. I was expected to be the best at school and never questioned it. But beyond that, I really didn't know who I was. I knew who other people were. I knew the kids who I suspected were bad kids. I knew the kids that were popular. I did not understand popularity, but I, I knew that I did not like those kids much. I, I couldn't tell you why. I just knew that I really didn't like them. And I never really saw that as a fault. Um, you know, and, and we talk about Jesus in school. It was the norm, you know, uh, in this time, the late 70s, I mean, the early 70s uh, in American, Southern American schools. Now, I personally, I didn't think that I knew Jesus as well as most of my teachers, but I knew there'd come a time where I might need him to swoop in and save me as well. For the most part, these teachers were pretty great people doing what they thought our parents would want. I was never quite so sure about my parents. Pop visibly did not go to the church house, and I think he slept through every sermon that Norman Crittenden ever screamed. How? I don't know, but I think he did. I think maybe later on we'll have a Norman Crittenden story. Um, so, so I got a good bit of my Jesus from school. And a little bit of day was fine, that is, until the eighth grade. Now, that's when I was blessed to be in Miss Manus' homeroom. She was a makeup-heavy, early 40-ish, rigid woman. Her makeup, giving her a very white face and very red lipstick and a brunette bouffant, was consistent and meticulous. And I, I got to tell you, she was very much God's messenger. Every day started with a story read from the Guidepost magazine. Now, the Guidepost... I saw it at our church every now and again, but it's basically a Christian reader's digest with plenty of stories of troubled people who were rescued from evil and troubled by God or maybe even sometimes Jesus when they were really special. And, and, and I had a hard time defining between the two, but rest assured, just like the Hardy Boys always escaped in the end, these folks in, God, in the God Post magazine, they were plucked away from harm's way just in time. But then, after the always entertaining story, she would tell stories about her own blessed life. And she was perhaps the most blessed person of all time. Her son, Stephen, who was a year or two younger than me. Yeah, Stephen. Hmm. As far as I could tell, he might be the second coming. And this is from Mrs. Manus, because I don't think I ever really talked to him. I think I was a little bit, you know, feared of Stephen, because, again, he might be the second coming. But, but he was so perfect in her eyes. It made me a little sick. I, I saw him in the hall sometimes, and he was about as dorky as they come, even dorkier than myself, and I wound up being president of the chess club. But he had thick glasses, and it was pretty clear that his mom still dressed him. I mean... I would say that he probably had a bunch of clip-on ties in his closet. Um, and here's the rub. Without knowing him, I somehow knew I didn't like him. Now, later on in life, that kind of kind of bit me because a friend of mine once said to me, he said, hey, you know, 
there's a bunch of people don't know you, don't like you. And I said, think about what you just said. That don't make no sense. I mean, how could they know? Why would they make up their mind? But anyway, in eighth grade, I'd made up my mind. And and I, I knew I didn't like him. I, I wondered where this emotion came from. I mean, even Miss Manus's dog was better than mine. I, I, I don't remember the dog's name. I wish I did. But, but this dog, and she would tell this story about two, three times a week about how special her dog was. But this dog would wait for her to come home every day, sitting on a street corner several blocks from her home, and then run beside her all the way home and jump into her arms. And it was some type of, you know, everlasting, over-the-top, hugging and kissing and welcome home. I mean, no one ever welcomed me home. I, I, I couldn't even remember my dog seeing me get off the bus. And then she would usually end the 30-minute daily sermon by crying and asking us all if we had Jesus in our lives. It was a little intimidating, especially if you really weren't sure. I mean, no one would admit it, I think. Um, I mean, I was sure, but I wasn't sure, you know, because I, I loved the idea, I loved the feeling, but there was something about people like Miss Manus that kind of turned me the other way. Later on in life, my kids would call it church people. They would say, and I would go to church and have a big time except for them church people who don't think that we're good enough to go there, right? Anyway, Miss Manus was a church people. So, and you know we're coming to something. But this day finally came. And there was something about the day, even, even before I got off the bus at Park Avenue Junior High, I, I knew it was going to be different. And as the 8 o'clock bell rang, Miss Manus walked into the room. Her makeup was not so great. She had been crying already. She sat down in front of us and just started bawling. Oh, my God. I don't know what had happened, but it was bad. It was really bad. I thought maybe... You know, Stephen had went to the devil or something. I really couldn't tell. Um, and, and this is one of those deals, right? You just, you're in eighth grade, and there she is up there. She's not talking. She's just crying, and she's not even crying. She is wailing. This would have been a good time for a fire drill, I thought. Then she pulled herself together enough to talk. Barely. Her voice breaking, and she told us. The afternoon before, she was driving home. As usual, her and Mr. Perfect, Stephen, were right on time. And there on the corner was her little dog. Together, she drove. And he ran beside her all the way home. But today, for some reason, the dog lurched out as her car lurched in. And she ran over her own dog. Squished him dead. The greatest dog in the world, killed by Jesus' own emissary. How horrible. I saw Amy Robinson across the room, and she was crying. 
it was at this exact moment that I knew who I was. For in this moment, I wanted to smile. I wanted to laugh. I wanted to tell the world that this was the funniest, most awesome thing that had ever happened. Uh, Of course I didn't. But inside, I began to churn with the realization that I might actually be different. I might actually have a personality. And my life might be interesting after all. So that ends the first episode of Southern Tales. Trust me, there's a lot more to learn after just that start. We will talk about bootleggers, revenuers, drug smugglers, drug kingpins, Southern fraternity life, criminal life, going to prison. It will be a lot of fun. And remember, every goddamn word is true, or at least close to it. Join us next time for Southern Tales. Southern Tales is a production of Broadneck Music. Find more about us and the notes for this show at broadneckmusic.com. See you next time.